Okay, let's turn to Hebrews, please. And also Ephesians chapter 1. We're having a little trouble with the monitors in the other rooms, and that's why there are seemingly more people here today in, in this magnificent main auditorium. I saw a brief video recently of Jordan Peterson, the famous psychologist from our hat in the north, Canada, and he was talking about the Bible and called it the first hyperlinked book, and he's exactly right. It is hyperlinked by 65,000 cross-references, and I believe there are many more than that. I, when I started reading the Bible as a very young Christian, I had a Holman, King James, Holman Bible, and what I loved about it is the cross-references, and there were, that's how I started to learn the Bible. I didn't read books. I read a verse, then cross-reference, then followed cross-reference. Before I long, I had doctrines, and I didn't realize there were 65,000 cross-references. I suspect quite a few more. But the Bible is hyperlinked because it is one single master work, a divine authored masterwork. And so as we look into the Bible, we are seeing a divine masterpiece. And so we never take that for granted. The message today is chosen in him. Chosen in him. My intention in the last week and this week is to sort of interject or incorporate is probably a better word, the doctrine of election into our Hebrew study because the elect one is Jesus Christ and he is manifested as 1 Peter 1.20 says, manifested in these last times for you. We're going to see the link up with that, speaking of hyperlinked, in Hebrews 9.26, where it says that now once at the termini of the ages, Christ was manifest, same word that Peter chose in 1 Peter 1.20, manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of none other than himself. He's the elect one. He's now manifested. Jesus Christ is the one whom the Bible calls elect Indeed, that was our subject last Sunday. Elect indeed, that's how Peter, again, puts it, 1 Peter 1.20, the book that is probably most similar to Hebrews of all other books in the Bible, speaking again of hyperlinked. Elect indeed, it calls him. And the reason for this is because he is the electing God and elected man in one. Elected indeed because he was and is elected in representation of all men, all mankind, male and female, who alone was rejected, who alone was reprobated, who alone was judged for us all in becoming sin for us, that we would be made God, God's very own righteousness in him. 
who was made a curse for us, that eternal blessedness would come to us without obstacle. This is what it means, or part of what it means, that he is elect indeed. Already in his crucifixion, he was exalted as the elect one. Already, while crucified in weakness, he's the all-time winner. Jesus Christ is elect indeed. Because despite man's rejection of God, He is elect for all mankind, despite man's rejection of God. Because Christ died for the ungodly, says Romans 5, 6, and God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. Jesus Christ is elect indeed because despite man's rejection of God, he is the elect for the rejecting man. The cancellation of the godless man's hostile no to God. Jesus Christ is the yes of God to all mankind and therefore the cancellation of man's no to God. And we're going to see that there's also between this no and yes, or with this no and this yes, there is a nevertheless. The grace of God is the nevertheless, nevertheless of God. Man may reject God, but God nevertheless elects man, calls man, justifies man, glorifies man, calls man all mankind to his glory. He is the elect one for the rejecting man, the cancellation of the godless man's hostile no to God. For Christ died for the ungodly once again, that can't be overemphasized, Romans 5, 6, and God justifies the ungodly, not out of a whim, not out of caprice, or even out of clemency, but out of love and out of respect for his son. When you study the systems of doctrine that deal with election and predestination, Calvin, Zwingli, even Thomas Aquinas, when you study the modern and ancient systems, as I looked at recently, I was rather taken aback by the neglect in all those systems of Jesus Christ, the elect one. I was also taken aback and somewhat shocked to recall the almost total ignorance of God's love in all those systems. And that's why there's so much controversy of the election, as if God elects out of a whim or out of caprice, and therefore elects some to salvation and others to perdition, despite their volition, which to me 
and to anyone with any brains, that's a, a despicable and deplorable doctrine. Jesus Christ is elect indeed, finally, because we are elected in him. Elected indeed, because we are elected in him. That's our verse today, our hyperlinked verse with our passage in Hebrews, Ephesians 1.4. We'll look at it in a moment, but there's some other links that I want to make. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world or the creation of the universe, as it's called. That phrase, the foundation of the world, is scattered throughout the Bible, and there's a hyperlinking of that with many other passages, including Hebrews 9.26, which we're going to look at. Again, it should be emphasized that Jesus is elect indeed, not only as the electing God and the elected man in one, but because we were elected, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, the creation of the universe. And since the creation of the universe, he suffered once, not many times, since the foundation of that universe in Hebrews 9.26a, showing God's love for the world. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to purify her and make her sanctified by the word. But he not only loved the church, he loved the world. Now I looked at this verse, this became very curious to me because I was looking at several verses having to do with the elect and you see that word in the Greek text in the Old Testament as well, in Psalm 1826, which in the Septuagint or the Greek translation is 1727 of the Psalms. And we've all read this in the King James and we've seen that with the pure, he shows himself pure. With the perverse, he shows himself perverse. And however, what's curious about this verse is that in the Greek text, it says with the elect, you are elect. With the elect, you are elect. And then, so usually it's translated something like, with the pure, you are pure. With the crooked, you are crooked. And we could also see that, that both of those refer to Jesus Christ. With the elect, you are elect, because all are elect in him. What about the perverse, the twisted, the distorted? Jesus Christ became the twisted, the distorted, and the perverse when he became sin. So with the perverse, he became distorted and twisted in the cross, in the crucifixion, in the judgment that he bore for all mankind. Jesus Christ is the elect one in the first part of that verse. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the one who was distorted and made crooked on the cross with the crooked. He identified with the sinner. He became the only rejected one by God. The judge who was judged in our place, the priest who is also the sacrificed lamb, the offering and the offerer, the judge and the judged, the son of man who comes to the ancient of days to receive a kingdom, a kingdom that he not only receives himself, but in Hebrews 12, 28, a kingdom that we are all receiving, a kingdom that cannot be moved. 
So this verse receives its ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ and him crucified. For he is elect with the elect as they are chosen in him. And he was crooked and distorted, tortured and perverse with the perverse. Becoming a curse, he became the perverse. Becoming sin, he became all that sin is in its very substance and essence. All of its repugnant realities. And this is our king of kings. Ruling above all rulers, not with a tyrannical rule. He is ruling above all rulers. Consider this thought. It's an odd one. I just want to insert it here while we go. This week as I was meditating on the rule of God overruling man, I thought about all of the hundreds of thousands, now millions of illegal, they're called, migrants or immigrants that are crossing our obviously porous border and filling up our country. Politically, people complain about it. People on one side don't think it's happening. People on the other side are shocked that it's happening. But what if God, in his overruling grace, wanted to fill up this country with a whole bunch of people to fill up the souls that were aborted? What if he wanted to say, okay, here's the number of people coming into your nation that would have been here had they not been taken in abortion? What if God's overruling all this other political stuff? What if, what if he was? You say, well, that's an insane thought. Not as insane as the political fighting. I just say that as a what if. I don't say that is. I just say what if that is. Could that, if that were the case, then perhaps that could be one example of God's justice and grace. Now remember, I said justice and grace. Justice and grace. Showing his forgiveness by such an influx as well as his judgment. And there's never judgment from God without grace. So if there's even a slight hint of guilt in anything I've suggested today, perish the thought. Grace will make the guilt perish and has done so. But how about Psalm 89.3, which the Septuagint is 88.4. I have made a covenant with my elect ones. I have made a covenant with my elect ones. See, the covenant comes into play here. Our subject is still the new covenant because the middle section of Hebrews really starts with 8.12 and the forgiveness of sins according to the new covenant and it ends in Hebrews 10:18 with a reference to the new covenant where there is the forgiveness of sins there's no more sacrifice for sins I have made a covenant with my elect ones eklektoi mu or how about 
the Septuagint of 88.20, which in your English Bibles is probably 89.19. I have exalted an elect one. I have exalted an elect one. Eclecton, singular, of my people. I have elected an elect one of my people. Jesus Christ is the elect one of his people, and in him all people are elected. We've seen Romans 11.28 last week regarding the election. They, Israel, are loved by God. Though they are enemies of the gospel, because of the election, they are loved. And because of the patriarchs, they are loved. Despite their enmity to the gospel, they are elect. Why? Because, as I said at the outset, God's grace is despite man's no. God's love is despite man's no. God's nevertheless is in the face of man's no. You see, I have rejected the gospel. God. Well, God says, well, nevertheless, I have rejected your rejection. That's, humili that's humiliating to somebody who wants to bluster against God. A certain person with him, whom I had lots of debates, I may have mentioned his name once or twice, I won't today, but I said, you need an experience like Saul of Tarsus and the road to Damascus. He said, I know all about that. I still won't change. <laughs> I said, okay. All righty then. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, knowing beloved brothers and sisters. Please notice that word, beloved. Please notice that despite their enmity to the gospel, they are loved and elected, Romans 11.28. And then look at 1 Thessalonians 1.4. You don't have to look at it, but listen to it. Knowing beloved, loved brothers and sisters, your election by God. Love and election. Love should not be omitted in a study of God's election. Like he chose out of some inscrutable, mysterious wisdom. And they say, well... Why does he pick some people to go to hell and other people to go to hell? We don't know, but we know that God is what? Is what? We know that God is what? Don't tell me love, because you've neglected love to even say that. It's best to listen to what God says in the scriptures and not what men say in their systems. Now, speaking of men, there's only one man that I think actually wrote his whole system while he listened to Jesus Christ and heard his voice, and that's Karl Barth. And that's the highest recommendation I can give him. But he only pointed to the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ like no other theologian I've read. Now we're ready for Ephesians 1. Add to this blessed mix, these hyperlinks, to formerly idolatrous pagans, Paul wrote this. Both Paul and Peter wrote to formerly 
idolatrous pagans. Peter's primary audience throughout Asia Minor in 1 Peter was not Jews. There was a mix of Jews, but it was mostly Gentiles. That's why he said you have been redeemed or ransomed from your former idolatrous lifestyle handed down to you by your ancestors, not by corruptible coins like silver and gold, but with the coin of the realm, we could say, the precious blood of a, as of a lamb without spot, without blemish, without defect. Both 1 Peter 1, 3 and Ephesians 1, 3 open with the words, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both Peter and Paul saying the same to formerly idolatrous pagans in Ephesus, or rather, even though it's called Ephesians, it's written to a people in Laodicea. We've shown that elsewhere. I'm not going to belabor that point today. But they heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit convinced them of Jesus Christ, brought them into Christ, and they didn't even know what hit them. They, they did not know what hit them. So Paul wrote Ephesians to tell them what hit them. This is what hits you. I got to tell you about you people, he says. He said this in 1.4, God chose us in him. God chose us in him, elected us in him. Excelexato. You'll see this in print if you want the notes. They'll be coming out after I spend three or four hours editing them tomorrow morning. Excelexato. Enauto. God chose us in him before the foundation. Foundation there, kataboles, is actually the creation of the cosmos. Before the creation, pro, kataboles, cosmu, before the creation of the cosmos, the universe. To be holy, elected you to be holy, Hagios, the plural of Hagios, holy, and without blemish. Now that word is amomas. You'll see that in print if you are interested in the notes. A-M, omega O-M-O-U-S, amomas, the plural of the word amomas, which happens to appear in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, to God. Purify your consciousness, your conscience, to serve the living God. The living God, of course, is the life-giving God. Not just living in himself and for himself, but life-giving of himself. So both things here chose us in him, who? Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the cosmos to be holy, and without blemish, before him in love. Some people think the word in love belongs at the end of four. Some people think it belongs at the beginning of five. I think it belongs at both, because Ephesians 1.3 is the ultimate run-on sentence. 
The reason I go by Rick instead of Alan, my real first name, is because my teachers used to yell at me by the name Alan. <laughs> and so I like Rick better. But the, my father used to call me Alan, too. If he was really mad, he would say, Ricky, get in here. And if I didn't get in here, he'd say, Alan, Richard, Knapp, get in here. And so I said, I don't like that word, Alan. But our teacher, my teacher used to say, Alan, you would have gotten an A on this paper except for those run-on sentences. And I said, I should have, if I'd have known Paul, then I said, let me show you a run-on sentence, teacher. And then I would have sung, hey, teacher, leave this kid alone. No, I wouldn't know then. That was before, believe it or not, that was before that song. But... This is a run-on sentence. It starts at 1-3. It goes all the way through 14. One run-on sentence by the Apostle Paul. And you got to give it to him. The guy was pretty excited. I would have been too. You're telling these pagans, these once pagans that now are aware of Jesus Christ through the gospel, the Holy Spirit's pouring out the love of God in their hearts. They, they're starting to love each other, people that they hated. There's all kinds of things. They, they're saying, what happened to us? And Paul said, I'm here to tell you what happened to you. This is what happened to you. Oh, and this is how to live now. And this is who you are now. And put off the old man. You can put on the new man now. So God determined us. And this word without blemish, again, is used in 1 Peter 1.18, just like Christ the Lamb. God elected us in him to be just like him, without spot, like lambs. Maybe on the way out you can check out this picture around the corner, this new painting hanging in our hallway. It's kind of emblematic of, well, it's actually a portrait of me. I have a portrait of myself. Just to, to uh, bring everybody's rumors to a close, this is a cult, and my portrait is out in the, hall, the hallway. Not in the, I'm not in the background of the painting. I'm up front. I'm right in the, in the front of it. You'll see. That's me. Portrait. Brilliant. I'm going to just leave it that way on the tape, on the, on the MP3. I'm just going to leave it that way so people, you really think he has a portrait of him? <laughs> Amamas. It's used seven times in the New Testament. It's used seven times in that hyperlink document called the New Testament. Ephesians 1.4 and 5.27. Colossians 1.22. Hebrews 9.14. 1 Peter 1.19. And Jude 1.24. So a lamb without blemish or defect or a lamb without spot. Now spot here means a taint of character or reputation or a fault it's not spot like one of the many black spots on the red wing covers of ladybugs, not that kind of spot, or the dark spots on a pinto pony. It refers to an area marred or marked, such as a surface lesion of disease or decay. Lambs were inspected to make sure there was no defect of such a thing, no lesions, no blemishes, nothing that mars the perfection of a face of a lamb. In Song of Solomon 4.7, to illustrate this, the scripture says, the shepherd says to his lover, you are altogether beautiful, my mate, and there is no flaw in you. 
kai momos uk esten en soy. Kai momos. Momos means fault. A momos deprives the fault. A momos means without fault, without flaw, without defect. Speaking, of course, symbolically of Jesus Christ in whom there is no sin, no flaw, no defect. Now notice how Ephesians 1.5 continues. If you want to put in love here, it's okay. If you want to be in love in 1.4, it's okay. It's okay to be in love anywhere in the scripture. In love, he predestined us to the adoption through Jesus Christ for himself. What is the adoption? Best way to understand it is by hyperlinking, linking this up with Romans 8.29, a later epistle, not earlier, even though it's chronological, even though it's arranged in the scriptures first, Romans. In my view, the last epistle Paul wrote, at least church epistle, Romans 8.29, he predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. So predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself means the same thing as predestined to be conformed into the image and likeness of his eternally begotten son, crucified, buried, raised, ascended, exalted, glorified. In love, he predestined us to the adoption through Jesus Christ for himself according to the gracious pleasure of his will. To the praise, says verse 6, of the glory of his grace. We made an argument one time through Romans. If God's grace is unconditional, then it has to be universal. Because if you put God's grace as unconditional, it has to be toward all mankind. Otherwise, if man, all mankind wasn't contained in his grace, then there would have been a condition on some and not on others. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that's Christ, the son of his love in Colossians 1.13. In the beloved. Elected us in him and now we're in the loved one. God's special loved son. In whom we have redemption by his blood. Can't escape the blood. As we can't escape it in Hebrews. As you can't escape it in First Peter. As you can't escape it anywhere. In whom we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of transgressions, that means lawlessnesses or unrighteousnesses, words for sins, in keeping with the wealth of his grace. In keeping with the wealth of his grace. Now here's where I want to get into the nevertheless. Let's talk about the wealth of God's grace. God did not predestine us to the adoption, that is to conformity with his son in Romans 8:29 out of a whim or due to a capricious sovereignty by which some were so predestined and others were predestined to perdition also known as hell 
If God's love isn't involved, then the system is wrecked. So let's talk about, again, the grace of God, which is really just the love of God in action. His unrestricted, unconditional, unlimited love in action. He did not elect us in him due to capricious sovereignty. God did not predestine us, the church, alone to this conformity either. God did not predestine us, the church, to this conformity either. And that's very important to understand. He, conform, he predestined all whom Jesus Christ, the elect one, represents. And Jesus Christ, the elect one, represents all humankind. All people, all places, all times, all races. God predestined us in love, not restricted love, but unrestricted. God did limit his power on purpose, because he limited it to love. He did not limit his love. He did limit his omnipotence to love. And by not limiting his love, his omnipotence or his all power is directed in love to all mankind. That's not in my notes. I just thought of that. God predestined us in love and it's astonishing, and this is something I found quite astonishing, in 2.2, two, Roman numeral 2.2 two, is the most famous volume probably in theological seminaries. It's Karl Barth's volume 2.2, two, where he made the most magnificent four affirmations of, on election that I have read over and over again, and you could fan out for 10,000 pages. Those are the affirmations 32, 33, 34, and 35 in volume two, and it's about election. And he went through the whole history of doctrine of predestination, Calvin especially, and Calvin's students, Biza and Gomares and others which people still follow, Zwingli and other reformers, Luther and other reformers, Thomas Aquinas, whose entire Summa Theologica I read several years ago. All of these systems, in all of these systems, there is a shocking neglect of Jesus Christ, the elect one. And therefore, they all fall under this rubric of a double predestination, some to blessedness and eternal life, others to damnation and eternal hell. And if you add irresistible grace to that, then you have one of the most monstrous, the most monstrous being that could ever exist. His name is God, because he chooses some to have the blessedness of eternal life and irresistibly causes them to enter into that destination, while others he just overlooks and lets them go into perdition and eternal hell. And philosophers and all kinds of thinkers have repelled that idea of God with horror throughout history 
And that includes Immanuel Kant and other philosophers, and I agree with them. If that's God, to hell with them. I have nothing to do with them. I want nothing to do with that God. He'd be less cruel to set up a system of concentration camps across Europe and then incinerate people in furnaces. Sound familiar? The neglect of Jesus Christ, the elect one indeed, and the neglect of love taint these systems. God predestined us in love. Not restricted love, but unrestricted. Not conditional, but unconditional. Not forced, but free. Grace is indeed irresistible, as the I in tulip says in the system called Calvinism. Total depravity, unlimited. It should be unlimited atonement, but he put limited atonement, which is blasphemy. Unconditional grace, correct. Total depravity of man, total inability of man to redeem himself, the the T in tulip, correct. Unconditional grace, correct. Limited atonement, eh, wrong. Irresistible grace, correct. Perseverance of the saints, no. Perseverance of God for the saints and for all the world. There is irresistible grace. I'm in Christ because I couldn't resist being in Christ. If you want to call it getting saved, I got saved against my resistance. I'm in Christ despite my resistance, justified by grace, not by my faith, because I've been saved by grace and through a faithfulness that's not from me. It, that salvation, and that faithfulness is of Jesus Christ. And it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not of our works, neither is it of our faith. The same systems often neglect God's love. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the cosmos. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's son, the son of his love, in love. The love with which God not only loved the church, but loved the world. The Bible does not say God so loved the church that he gave his only eternally begotten son. It says God so loved the world and that he sent his son into the world to save the world through him. The church is just a provisional preview of a universal community. We have been what? Caused to be born again to be a kind of first fruits. Not to be everything, but to be a kind of first fruits of a universal harvest is what James is talking about. Someday I'm thinking of doing a little study on James. I'm gonna call it Jams from James. Or James Jams, how about that, James Jams. Now that I've said that, no, I probably will not have time to do that study. I just like titles. But 
The negative and even aggressively hostile response of the godless man or woman is no obstacle to God. That's what it means, the wealth of his grace. It means the negative and even sometimes aggressively hostile response of the godless man or woman is no obstacle to God and to his unrestricted love because of the wealth of his grace. The wealth of his grace is his unrestricted and limitless love in action. It is God's nevertheless to the godless man's no. I say no. God says, well, nevertheless... That's very humiliating to the one who wants his no to stand. God's yes in Jesus Christ stands. He is the yes to all the promises of God, including the restoration of all things. Man's no, however emphatic, however brave and courageous and applauded by men. Oh, such and such a person is so courageous in their blasphemous unbelief. They're so courageous. They've dared to say no. God's not shocked. In fact, he laughs at them a little bit, according to Proverbs. He laughs at them. He goes, <laughs> you're, you're saying no to me? Well, nevertheless, your no can't stand. Sorry. No, like Reese's peanut butter cups, not sorry. <laughs> I like Reese's peanut butter cups, not sorry. They're not good for you. They have canola oil. They have sugar. They, yeah, all the good stuff. All the four food groups. That's right in there. So then, now we're ready. God's nevertheless is said to the godless man's no. God's yes stands. God, man's no cannot stand. And God cannot stand man's no. So he says, nevertheless. So grace is God's nevertheless to our no. Now I'm, I've failed in my temptation. I've been tempted to quote Barth. And I've been saying, no, I don't want to quote as much as I get older. I want to just put it in my own words. But this was too good. I have to quote Karl Barth in this one. In Church Dogmatics 2.2, two, page 28. Grace is the nevertheless, he says, of the divine love to the creature. Grace is the nevertheless of the divine love to the creature. Then he goes on to say, the election consists in this nevertheless. It is indeed election, he says. It is indeed grace. And for that reason, it is free. How could the divine love to the creature be really love? How could it be divine unless it was free? But it is grace, loving kindness, favor. In it, God says yes to the creature and not no. He says it of himself. He says it without the creature having any right or claim to it. He says it then in freedom. He does not say no, but yes. And against our no, he places his own nevertheless. He is free in the very fact that the creature's opposition to his love cannot be any 
obstacle to him. Man, that's good. And that's true. I'll say that last sentence again. He is free in the very fact that the creature's opposition to his love cannot be any obstacle to him. So these systems that say God needed to fellowship with somebody else, so he elected to create. No, he did not. He didn't need to fellowship with a twerp like me. Are you kidding me? He had perfect interrelationship and total fulfillment in isolation from all that's created. Are you kidding? You think he needed fellowship with us? You must really have some high self-esteem. But he acted in totally free love. He wasn't obligated by any kind of sense of sovereignty or justice, just free love. He, didn't, he wasn't compelled by love to create us. He freely decided in his love to create the creature, the other, with whom he would share his life, his fellowship, his eternal bliss and extraordinary rejoicing and joy forever and ever and ever and ever without end out of the freedom of his love. That's all. The poor hippies of the 60s were after that. Free love, yes. And free love got you all kinds of diseases. We're talking about God's free love. Now let's get back to some hyperlinked verses. 1 Peter 1, 19 to 20, remember? And that's going to move us into Hebrews where we'll close. In 1 Peter 1, 19 to 20, Christ, let me just pick up the phrases that we need for the, from this little passage. 1, 19 to 20, Christ is the reference, the referent here from earlier on, whom God elected indeed, eclectos men, M-E-N, indeed, but who has now been manifested, and that was our key word last week, manifested in these last times for you, pronobus. God elected himself before he elected man. He predetermined himself in eternity to be God for the other, the other being mankind and all of creation for that matter. All of creation. I read this week that a man had a, an emotional support animal that happened to be an alligator. Good for your support, but keep that thing away from me. Can you imagine being on a plane, somebody brings an eight-foot alligator, and says, this is my emotional support animal. Well... I brought my emotional support with me on the plane. You can't see him. It's God. He's the one that can keep this plane up. Your alligator can't do that. He might make you feel good when you're going down in flames, but he, he's not going to do anything else for you. I said that to say, though, that God loves that alligator. God willed that that alligator be and not not be. He willed and selected that alligator to live. God loves all creation. He will liberate all creation from its slavery to corruption. He will liberate all creation so even the animals and wildlife in it that are ferocious 
and predatorial. Well, the lamb will lie down with the lion and the wolf with the little lamb. That's a picture of the liberation of creation. But God willed out of totally free love, not out of some obligation to have somebody else in his life. He didn't go on the internet to find a mate. He created out of totally free love and elected out of total free love. In fact, he elected himself and predetermined himself. We say predetermined. It's not a good way to say it about God. because We say predetermined because we look in terms of temporal viewpoint where, well, he did this before time. But God didn't predetermine. He just determined eternally. He determined himself to be not just God, but God for the other. God determined himself eternally to be in love for the other than God, the created, the undeserving, those who couldn't merit his love. Out of free, total love. There was no obligation on his part. Now, with that said, let's look at Hebrews 9.24. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands. Remember back in Hebrews 9.7, once a year, the archpriest, under Aaron's order, the Levitical cultus, once a year on Yom Kippur entered into the second room of the earthly tent with blood, not his own, but the blood of others which he applied to the altar, to the ark, to the mercy seat. But this, Christ, the Messiah, did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere representation of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not in order to offer himself many times, just as the archpriest entered into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another, in which case he would have had to suffer, that means suffer the absolute death which he suffered on the cross by becoming sin, many times since the foundation of the world. But now, once he was manifested, at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin through the sacrifice of himself. Who is this Christ who is manifested at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin? The end of one age marked by an old covenant, the beginning of a new age marked by a new covenant, right at that termini of those two ages he was manifested to put away sin by the offering of himself, entering into heaven afterward, not an earthly tent and the second room of an earthly tent, but into heaven itself with his own blood. Now to appear before the face of God is how I would translate it more accurately than in the presence of God. He was always in the presence of God. In fact, his presence is the presence of God. 
You're in the presence of God today. I'm speaking in the presence of God and aware of it. I'm speaking in the presence of God and aware that I'm speaking in his presence. But I do not see the face of God without any mediation between me and that face. Jesus sees the face of his Father in heaven. Now, let's see how this is handled. This is how we incorporate the doctrine of election, an integral component of the doctrine of God with our theological exposition of Hebrews. The one who was manifested, 1 Peter 1.20, Hebrews 9.26, in that link of this hyperlink document called the Bible. The one who is manifested, phanerao, in the last times, in these last days, is the one who was elect indeed. So the one who was once sacrificed, the one who made a single perfect sacrifice, did so in representation of all of humanity. So in him, God looks upon us as having made the perfect sacrifice. That's why he says, hey, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, acceptable, holy, before God. Already holy and acceptable before God. Why? Because God regards you as having made the perfect sacrifice in him when the elect one indeed made the perfect sacrifice with you in him, because you were chosen in him from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. So let's glance at it again in our line upon line exegesis of Hebrews 9. For Christ did not enter, meaning with his own blood, having made a single superior unrepeatable sacrifice of himself, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, a mere representation of the genuine sanctuary. That's the translation but into heaven itself, now in the ongoing present. The word now is a ongoing present. The Latin calls it nunc stands, the now that stands. He now appears, now the now that stands, that remains. And that means throughout this time in between the two radical alterations, the reconciliation of the world to God in Christ, which has occurred and is present in this world today. It is the present reality today. And the radical alteration that is yet to come in the eschaton when all are resurrected, all people of all times become contemporaneous and live at the same time in future world in resurrected bodies. Between those two great alterations, he appears in heaven for us. He appears is another word that's like phanerao, and this time it's ephanizo, emphanizo rather, in the presence of God. To prosopo to theu in the Greek means before the face of God, for us, there it is again, pronobis, for us. God first, you can't understand election of people without first understanding that God elected himself and determined himself to be for us. And then to understand that Jesus Christ is the elect one indeed, both the electing God and the elected man in one that this Son of God is the only one reprobated, to use the language of Calvin, 
the only one rejected by God in the crucifixion, elected indeed, for we were all chosen in him, elected in him. Not only before we could do anything good or bad, but before there was a universe. And this is for the world, the church just being a provisional preview. And so in this time in between, throughout this time in between the two radical alterations, another way of looking at it is throughout this time of adversity, throughout this evil age in Galatians 1.4, from which God seeks to deliver us and does deliver us in Jesus Christ, in this time in between where we need the grace to withstand and overcome adversity, throughout this evil age in which we need to be delivered from evil, in which we need the help of our divine helper, throughout this age, he appears emphanizo. He is manifested before the Father. In the presence of God is better in the face or before the face of God for us. Why? Let's put it this way. Here's my translation for Messiah. Jesus did not enter a man-made sanctuary, a mere representation of the genuine one, but into heaven itself, now in the ongoing present, to appear before the face of God for us, on behalf of us. I say before the face of God rather than in the presence of God first, because prosopon, primarily and literally means face, not just presence. In the Septuagint of Job 11.15, Zophar, also known in the Greek as Sophar, so far so good, says to Job, your face, prosopon, will shine again like pure water. In Matthew 18.10, Jesus said, don't mess with little children. Do not mess with one of these little ones. Don't abuse them, don't molest them, don't mutilate them. Don't hurt them, don't teach them lies. Do not touch these, I'll tell you why. Because, for one thing, the angels of these little ones continually see the face of my Father in heaven. You want to touch one of these little ones? One of the angels in heaven, one of which could flick earth and make it crash into Neptune. The father, all, all he has to do is look at that angel and point down to that little one and the abuser of that little one. I'll tell you one thing. That one that's abusing that little one, it's better that they have a millstone wrapped around their neck and they're thrown in the deepest sea than to even offend one of these little ones. Their angels see the face of my Father in heaven. You realize the significance of that? Now a man sees the face of the Father in heaven for us, the man Christ Jesus, elect for us. In Matthew 6, 17 to 18, Jesus makes a reference to the physical washing of the face, the actual washing of the face. So some of you guys go around fasting, and your face is contorted, and your hair is all up in mats and everything, and everybody says, well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm fasting. I've been fasting for weeks now. 
Well, did God tell you to? No, I'm just doing it to gain his favor. Then you're an idiot. Have a Reese's Pieces. Have a Reese's Cup. Not sorry I asked you. So then, I think I'm going to give those out Halloween this so I can have some extra on the side. Say, Pam, we're going to give out Reese's Pieces. Boy, some slipped out of there. Ah, okay. Um, he said, when you fast, wash your face and anoint your head. You know what that means? Comb your hair. It's not a difficulty for me. All I have to do is go. But comb your hair. You know why? So that no one knows you're fasting except your father who is in secret. He is in secret. Your father in heaven is in secret. One of these days, your father will be in heaven but no longer in secret, and you will see his face. In Revelation 22, 3 and 4, it says that the servants of the Lamb will worship him and see his face, called prosopon, see his face, not just be in his presence, see his face. Secondly, I say face because the presence of God is everywhere. Paul spoke of speaking in the presence of God while he was still here on earth. We're all in the presence of God, even now. Sometimes we sense his presence more than others. And we're in his presence because God is omnipresent. But it's another thing to see his face. The man Christ Jesus appears before the face of the Father in heaven for us. If we want to use the phrase the presence of God, we should qualify it and say the immediate presence of God. As opposed to saying generically or generally God's presence. So Hebrews 9.24 is speaking explicitly of Jesus appearing before the unveiled unclouded face of God the Father. To Jesus, the Father, though in heaven, is not in secret. Now, as we close today, I want to do something. I want to do some hyperlinking of this thing. I just happened to see that video this morning of Peterson showing the 65,000 lines of hyperlinking of the scriptures. I decided... I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff here, and so it'll be bonus material in the notes. But what I want to do is bring in our idea of the Son of Man and hyperlink or link up the Son of Man. Look, says Daniel, in what I call the primal apocalyptic vision. Look, one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, and he receives a kingdom. Now, who is that Son of Man? Who is that one like a son of man? Who is that one who is the epitome of what a human being should be and is in glory? Who is he? Let's link Hebrews 9, 24 with that passage in Daniel 7, 13, and look what it looks like. For Christ, let's blend. I'm, what I'm doing right here is blending, linking, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, with Hebrews 9, 24. Hebrews 9, 24, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, a representation of the genuine, but heaven itself now in the ongoing present to appear in the presence of God for us. Let me translate it this way by blending those two, linking those two. For Christ, one like a son of man, did not enter a man-made sanctuary, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the Ancient of Days for us. 
Consider in the light of Isaiah 8.18, cited in Hebrews 2.13, what Jesus says when he appears before the face of the Ancient of Days as the Son of Man, the representative man, the one who is elect indeed because he's elect for us and we are all elect in him. What does he say when he appears before the face of his Father? He says, here I am with the children God has given me. Here I am with the kids. Who's the kids? Every man, every woman, every child, all humanity. When he appears before God, he says, here I am with the children you've given me. Who are the children? All those whom he called into glory. Who did he call into glory? The same ones he foreknew or foreordained. The same ones he called. The same ones he justified. Who did he justify? Oh, everybody in Romans 5.18. Here I am, the Son of Man, appearing before the Ancient of Days, my Father, but with the children you've given to me. Why? Because you elected to be God for people. God for all humanity. God for all creation. So I'm here with all them. Isaiah 8.18, cited in Hebrews 2.13. Here I am, the elect one indeed, in whom the children were also elected. Here I am, the representative, the priest of them all, in whom they all are. Jesus Christ is foreordained, chosen in advance indeed, because in his election all humanity is elected for blessedness, for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, only one was elected to be rejected, and rejected he was in the absolute death of the cross. We're already in crucifixion. He was the royal man. Speaking of the royal man, let's hyperlink some other links. The son of man is a royal man because he appears before the king of kings, before the ancient of days to receive a kingdom. The Son of Man is a royal man, the King of Kings. He received from the Ancient of Days a kingdom in Daniel 7, 14 and 27, which we are all receiving. Thank you for the kingdom, Father, the kingdom of God. It is, I'm receiving it along with the children that you gave to me. Let your kingdom come, Father. Let your kingdom come. If we all prayed the Lord's Prayer instead of ritually and knew what it meant and prayed it, he'd answer it. But millions of people all over the world say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom of heaven. Instead of understanding what they are asking for is the coming of the kingdom of God, the Father, and the doing of the will of the Father in heaven, in earth, on earth as it is in heaven, in this country, in this nation, in this world, in this generation, of the giving of the bread of the messianic banquet of future world already as an appetizer in this life, of teaching us the value of the forgiveness so that we can forgive others as we have been forgiven for Christ's sake by God the Father. And as we pray that prayer in earnest, I said to a neighbor this week, if we all prayed that prayer in earnest like we pray it in ritual, God would answer it. He would bring his kingdom. He would bring it in its fullness. He would bring his will on earth as it is in heaven. He would bring a renewal of the word of God and save this nation that is rapidly becoming a tyranny, just like our neighbor to the north, a rapidly evolving tyranny in which you will be, the tyranny that's coming is ten times worse than the terror that's been. 
Only God can redeem our nation from that kind of thing. Only God and a renewal of his word. Only the kingdom of God coming. Only the will of God being done on earth as it is already done in heaven. Only people tasting of the bread of the messianic banquet in advance of that banquet. Only people releasing the forgiveness that they've received and appreciating the forgiveness of sins that comes with the new covenant based on the blood of Jesus Christ. Only then can we say, Father, don't let us crack under the pressures of these adversities, which is a better way of saying, lead us not into temptation. That's not even a right petition. Don't let us crack under the pressure of the adversity in this time in between and deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the machinations and the desires and the designs of the wicked one, which are seemingly so successful today. Deliver us from evil. For yours is that kingdom and that power and that glory both now and forever. We pray that prayer instead of ritually by rote reciting it. God doesn't even hear that. Pagans do that. They chant and they think they're going to be heard by their much chanting. And they run through their beads and say it many times. Surely God will hear it if we ritually say it many times. No, he will not. But if we pray this from the heart in the Holy Spirit, he will answer that prayer. It's not a political solution. It's an answer to the prayer that Jesus Christ told us to pray. That's what will save this generation, our children's generation and our children's children. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, the glory of a king, the honor of a priest. The son of man, the royal man. He received from the ancient of days a kingdom which we're all receiving. The consuming fire that is our God consumes all kingdoms except the kingdom of God's beloved son. The kingdom of God's beloved son is the fire that consumes all other kingdoms, all human and demonic tyrannies, all the well-intentioned and so-called benevolent dictatorships of men. All the brutal, unjust authority and rule of ruthless rulers. All systems of authority, including the worst of all, which isn't a monarchy, an oligarchy, but an anarchy ruled by the mob. Deliver us, Father, from this evil. Our Father, who is in heaven, and to us who is in secret, let your name be held sacred in our generation. Let your name be hallowed, the name Jesus Christ, Yeshua, Yahweh. Father, let your kingdom come. Let your, bring it, Father. Bring your kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Power, not talk. Bring your kingdom. Let your will, Father, be done. Your saving will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today a taste of the bread of life of the messianic banquet in future world so that we can share that bread with others. Forgive us, Father, in such a way that the debts we carry from false burdens will be released and give us the incentive to release others of burdens that we alone can relieve them from as those who forgive them for wrongs done to us. Father, Yours is the kingdom. Father, do not let us crack under the untold 
pressures of the change of dispensations because the chains, the chains that bind us are all the more binding the closer we are to liberation. During these times, Father, don't let us crack under the pressures of the adversity of the clash of the ages that we must live under. You've chosen us to live in such a time as this, and not to whine under the adversity, but to keep going forward. Don't let us crack under the pressures of these necessary adversities of this time in between, but let us look unto our high priest who represents us in heaven, who is our helper, and let us not fear what men can do to us or what disease can do to us or what biological disease invented by men and released on the population by men who think the population is too high. Now, don't let us fear what men can do to us, but let us see you as our helper in this time in between. Deliver us from evil. Deliver our children from evil. Deliver our children's children from the evils of addiction and abuse and the evils of ignorance of the word of God, which allows people to fail in even recognizing their own identity as human beings. Deliver us from the evil that is being foisted upon this country, accelerated and turbocharged in the last four years in this world, in this country, in the country above us, in the country below us. Deliver us from evil. And let our confession be, Father, that yours is the kingdom both now and forever. Amen. Let's close with the song.